20th Psalm. You'll note in turning there, if you have an annotated Bible of some sort, it will probably say Book 4. There are technically five books to the Psalms, and this starts this one, and um, part of the text, uh, there is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So let us give attention to the reading of Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May we have grace to understand and apply. Last year when I was doing some reading and work for sermons on union with Christ, I found this book. It was a book by Jerry Bridges, a very fine author. He died a couple of years ago. And uh, it was entitled, Who Am I? And it was his book, like I said, on union with Christ and before opening it, I thought, well, he's going to probably start with something about the gospel and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it starts, isn't it? And no, I was wrong. His first chapter is entitled, in answer to the question, you know, if somebody says, who are you? You might respond, I am such and such. And so his first chapter is entitled, 
I am a creature. I am a creature. Yes, made in God's image. We are more than beast, but we are still creatures. It means, uh, Bridges goes on to say, it means a couple of things. It means that we are both dependent on God and accountable to God. Utterly dependent, he says. Food, life, breath, our plans, our abilities. Uh, we are physically fragile, really. Spiritually vulnerable. And then, of course, morally accountable. Romans 14, Paul will say, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Moses, the author of this psalm, knew these truths. I know I'm looking at an intelligent congregation. Uh, we know about Moses leading the people out of Egypt. He knew these truths of human mortality and uh, fragileness and accountability in spades, we might say. He saw it throughout the time of those wanderings. Uh, this, as I said, is probably the earliest, therefore, of the Psalms. And he takes us back in this Psalm, not only to those wanderings, not only to the deliverance of the people out of Egypt and what transpired in those 40 years before going into the land of which he himself was not able to even enter, but he will take us back, and I'll make reference. He takes us all the way back to creation. And we really shouldn't be surprised at that if you think about it. Moses being the author, what books did he have to work with? Well, he had written them, uh, the opening five. And so it would not be surprising that we see uh, statements in this psalm about the history in Genesis and in the early chapters and in with the, the flood of Noah and such. But we'll get into that. Okay, so a quick structure here that I'm going to be using. Um, I think this psalm falls into three parts. The first two are about six verses each, and the last about five or six. Five. The first section, verses one through six, the the theme is the transitoriness, the the mortality of men is set over against the eternity of God. Then you pick up from about seven through. Uh, really, I think I divided it more like seven to ten, those four verses. That transitoriness, that mortality is traced to its cause, its reason. And that is, namely, sin. And in the last part, the last part are actually the prayers. You know, it started out with the title, uh, the prayer. Um, Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. And you don't really get to the request until uh, verse, uh, verse 12. That's where the request really gets started there. And that's going to be the third section. But I'm going to speak. So the first main point that I have is the reality of our mortality. I'm not trying to be clever there, but I really do want to impress it upon us because it's part of the... Uh, uh, a chief part of the teaching of this psalm, these opening 10 verses. So the fact of our mortality, verses 1 through 6, set over against the eternity of God. 
Think about this for a moment. Moses would have been absolutely surrounded by this. Remember, a generation of people died before they were allowed. The rebellious generation died in its entirety except for Caleb and Joshua before they were allowed to go in. There is a sense in which the pilgrimage from Egypt to crossing the Jordan River was a continuous funeral procession. I did some crazy math. I like numbers. And I, uh, I figured, you know, if that generation was composed of about 2 million people, you were burying over 100 people every day. Every day. One of the best professions to have in Israel at the time would have been undertaker. And I'm not really, you know, I guess I need to watch out for my humor. It's not really that appropriate because this is a truth we all know about our mortality. And Moses would have witnessed this year in and year out. Uh, Verse 3 is very crucial here. And I I hope you'll keep your Bible open and follow with me as I refer to this because we'll be doing that. But God gives the command. He said, Moses says, you return man to dust. Where does that language come from? It comes right out of Genesis chapter three. It's not exactly the same as, uh, there's actually two different words for gets translated dust in Hebrew, but this is the idea of being pulverized, of being shattered into little pieces. And, but it comes right out of that context. You return man to dust. And give the command, return, O children of man, is how this translation says it. The actual Hebrew would be, return, O children of Adam. Children of Adam. That's who we are. You hear that reflection in Genesis 3 then. Um, when he says, return man, that phrase there, in the first part of verse 3, it's actually another Hebrew word for humankind, for man, that emphasizes our weakness and vulnerability and feebleness. And then he incorporates these various images about all of this. Verse 4 is in contrast to verse 3. Three is our mortality. What is it contrasted with? A thousand years in your sight, O Lord, or but as a day, but as a yesterday that is past, as a watch in the night. Think about what Moses wrote about for a moment. Remember, before the flood, there were people like Methuselah and Adam himself and so many others. What are the, what are the lives like for those Many of them getting into over 900 years. Even they. I think that may be one reason why Moses uses this language. Even if I lived a thousand years. But a day. If that to you. So it is contrasted with the eternality of God. Not even a day. Simply a watch in the night. And then you have... Uh, several images, about three. You sweep them away as with a flood. 
Think about where did that come from? Genesis 6, 7, 8, right in there. Noah's flood. Eight people saved in the ark. What happened to the rest? Swept away in a flood. It's just that the process hasn't stopped, has it? Just keeps going. Uh, I've started using the language with some. You know, it's interesting when a child was born, child, child born, the males are excited. And uh, I've started using the language, the march of the generations, right? Praise God. God is still doing work. God's still bringing children in. And there are those that are departing. The march of the generations continues like a flood. And then like a dream at night. And the third one is like grass. Here comes that, that, that new grass that uh, sprouts up. The dew is on it. There's, it's getting some humidity and moisture and the sun is shining and it's in the soil. And then perhaps because of the heat of the day, all about evening, it's withered and it's fading. And so he uses that. And those verses then simply speak about the reality of our mortality, a truth we must realize about ourselves. It's interesting, uh, our confession of faith actually, and our catechisms actually speak, the question is, well, why do we still die and such? And the answer is given, but, but uh, part, of the, part of the victory of Christ is our writers of the catechisms were special. It says, he takes away the sting of death, not the event of death. They did that very purposefully because of the truthfulness of it. But let's move secondly under this, under this main heading of the reality of our mortality. I said the fact of it and then the reason for it. The reason of it is in verses 7 through 10 and it is simply our sin, but that is a very important point to uh, realize. We have utterly failed in our moral accountability to the Lord. We have sinned. The people of Israel sinned. Adam sinned. Everyone has. For, uh, for all have sinned, Paul will say in Romans 3, and fall short of the glory of God. And that's a very important point Society would say kind of one of these one of these worldview things that Pastor Will brought up things. You know, what lens are you going to see through? Somebody says, well, yeah, I'm going to die. But, you know, everybody dies. It's just the course of life. And and there's nothing on the other side, whatever. However, in other words, this this momentous event that the Lord I think is really allowing to for, for people to reflect on and, and be one last call, so to speak, to, to say, come to faith in Christ. Ah, the world says, well, everybody's doing it, right? Everybody's doing it. They just think it's a course of history, and that is not true. It enters the world because of sin, our accountability before God, and the punishment is Death, you shall die. So there's this change of thought from the eternal God uh, over frail men, and now this uh, destructive anger of God is in view. 
One person writing says, Moses felt no contradiction between the two thoughts, frailness and God's eternity and God's anger against our sin. He says, we do not understand the full blessedness of believing that God is our refuge until we understand that God is our refuge from all that is destructive in himself. God saving us is in essence saving us ultimately from himself. He had to find a way to bring sinful people into fellowship with himself. How to escape his justice, his righteousness, his wrath, his holiness. How must he do that? And he has done it in Christ he says, we do not know, this author writing says, we do not know the significance of the universal experience of decay and death until we learn that it is not the result of our finite being, but of sin. That was the point I made earlier. The people of God in the desert began to understand that, recognize that as they they. Uh, in their rebellions and grumblings and the Lord's uh, dealings with them, that whole history there. Verse 7, verse 7 in Saul, uh, is the cause of their wasting away is declared. We're brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. Verse 8 is the occasion or the reason of that. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins. Verse 9 then is the consequence of God's anger falling on Israel's transgressions. Their days vanish, their years come to an end. The brevity of life is now stressed in light of the wrath of God. And verse 10 then sums up all of the these sad thoughts and meditations in which life is regarded as a poor 70 years, maybe 80 if you're strong. Of course, not all make it there, do they? One of my best friends growing up died a couple of years ago. He was a year younger than I a couple of years ago. Teaching elder Philip Seeley, a wonderful man, just died at 56 from cancer. And we could go on, we could spend the rest of our night talking about the people we know about these things. And what's the application from this main point here? This, the reality of our mortality. Well, surely it ought to be, we ought to respond to this truth with deep, in continual humility. We are not all that, are we? We are not, we, we, any of us of any age know this process is at work. And so there ought to be deep humility here. As a matter of fact, that, that is interesting. I just made the, the Lord just brought that connection. What was Moses like? Moses was the, I, I, I'm right, aren't I? In this, he was described as the humblest of men. And I think part of that may well be because of what he witnessed for 40 years. And then the second thing, of course, not only a deep and continual humidity, humility, 
but profound gratitude. Everything good in my life is a result of the blessing of the Lord. James makes that absolutely clear. Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights without whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We have no claim on him. Okay, second point. Let's move to the prayer request. If, that were, if, if those 10 verses are descriptive of our mortality, then how do mortals pray? And this is, this is really delightful. Uh, so the first is verse 11. Verse 11, I think, is something of an introduction to these prayer requests. It says, who considers, Moses right? who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? How few look beyond the external of their life or lay to heart this truth that God's wrath is operating against sin. One of my favorite Old Testament people is Alec Motier. He says, wrath is the unrecognized factor. Who realizes it is there? And of those who do realize it is there, how many see it in its full reality? And I think obviously the answer is very few. Very few. And so with that understanding, that introduction, then you're not surprised when... We come to the first request, the first request, Lord, I need wisdom for this one life you've given me. I need wisdom. You see it there. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Realism about our weakness our vulnerability, our fragileness is the necessary foundation to any true wisdom. You can easily see how the proudful, how the one who wants to be self-sufficient, who thinks he can construct his own life, that person will eventually be shattered against his mortality. And so... Moses starts here. This realism about our weakness is the necessary foundation of true wisdom. Another, if you're taking notes, Psalm 39, 4 through 6 reads this way. It elaborates on this theme. It says, it, it is another prayer of David. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So Moses prays here for himself and for the people since he knows the temptation is to utterly disregard and to have small thoughts concerning God's opposition to, to sin. He prays that God would take, by his power, would take my untaught heart in hand and teach us. That's the main verb. That's the imperative. That's the prayer. Lord, teach us 
to number our days. And then you have in this one verse, then, so what does that process yield? Well, the best fruit, then, which life can yield is a heart of wisdom. Is a heart of wisdom. And we could spend, again, time looking at the Proverbs, looking at Solomon. What did Solomon ask for? Ask for anything, Solomon. Oh, Lord, that I might be wise. That I might be wise. A heart of wisdom continually brings into every situation whatever I am in that situation and my relationship with the Lord. The wise seek the Lord in all of their ways and doings. So the first prayer request, there are four of them. I've made them into four. I want to live wisely before you, O Lord. The second request then is restoration to God's favor. You see that in verse 13. Return, O Lord. What's interesting is that's the same word used back in verse 3 where Moses writes and says, you, you turn, you return men to dust. Lord, return to us. Come now with favor uh, upon us. Have pity on your servants. Here Moses uses for the first time in this psalm, the, uh, you can see it in your, your Bibles, it's Lord with all capitals. It's the, the Hebrew word Yahweh. Where did he learn that? At the burning bush, right? This is the covenant God. Lord, you're in covenant with us. You've made promises to us. Don't, Don't stay at a distance. Come and show us your favor and your pity. How long will it be? He asked God to hasten this. So the second prayer request. Now, we said the first one. Lord, I want to live wisely before you. Oh, Lord, Come to me fresh with your favor. And the third one is, I've got it entitled, A New and Joyful Beginning for Comfort and Joy in the Return of God to Them. This is a the, the wonderful uh, two verses, 14 and 15. Here's the prayer request. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That's that Hebrew word for God's faithful, covenant, loyal love. His hesed. He does not break loving kindness, faithful love with his people. And Moses is praying as the day breaks, as tomorrow breaks, as every day breaks. Come, Lord, satisfy us with the reality, with the truth, with the knowledge, with the understanding that you have not cast us off. We are still your people, your servants, and you love us. And our response is joy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. You'll see that theme of joy continues in verse 15. Make us glad. Lord, we've spent year after year watching our loved ones die, burying them in the desert and all of this. Lord, for all of those years now, please restore to us as many as years of toil we've had. Let us now know joy. 
satisfaction in you. Alexander McLaren, one of my favorites, says, the only thing that will secure lifelong gladness is a heart satisfied with the experience of God's love. He's exactly right. You'll hear it rightly said in our day. It's somewhat popular. We hear the exhortation to what? Preach the gospel to yourself every day. That's, that's just that's 21st century language for what Moses said years and years ago. Lord, show us afresh this morning your hesed, your faithful covenant love. I'll give you another verse here. Write down Psalm 143, verse 8. It's a new verse that uh, I try to pray on a daily basis because it reads this way, Psalm 143, 8. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Is that not what you need every day? To hear in the morning as your day starts of God's faithful love to you. And then what else do you need from God? Lord, show me what I'm to do today. Lead me. Ancient prayers right there in the Psalms. Okay, we need to press on. The last one, but this is a wonderful one. The establishment of God's work in our work for the progress of the work of God among us. These last two verses requires three things. First of all, we need, and this is a prayer for, the vision of God and His work. Look at verse 16. Moses says, Lord, let your work be shown to us, your servants. Let us see your glorious power. Let our children see that glorious power. Show us, reveal yourself, show us more about your work, what you have accomplished. God's servants want to see their God glorified in this world. They want to see him continue to expand his kingdom. We want to be enthralled and amazed at what God has done and is doing. And so here's a prayer. Lord, make it real to me. Keep working afresh. Make your name great in Coventry, Connecticut. The second step in this, this is just a delightful thought. Verse 17, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, a couple of things are interesting about this. Some translations say, let the favor of the Lord rest upon us. There's actually not a, a verb there in the Hebrew. They're trying to get this logic of the statement right. The word favor, we struggle to get the right interpretation for it. Sometimes it seems to carry the note of let the graciousness of God be upon me. Let the beauty, sometimes people say, of God. Let the pleasantness of God 
be upon us. But it's the idea, I think the closest thing is in now with New Testament eyes looking back, Lord, would you let your spirit rest in fullness on me? I see your work, Lord. Let your spirit rest on me, bearing his character fruit in my lives. But then look, what's the third? Then there is the establishment of our works by God. Now, now I'm able to truly work. I have seen God's works. He's enabled me by his favor or spirit resting upon me. And now the prayer repeated twice. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's conclude. God is the home. He's the refuge of all who find any real home in this world. That's how this psalm started. But I want, I want us to see how beautiful that last section is in light of where this psalm led us from the start. There was this dreary picture of mortality and death and anger against sin. Is there any hope for a human being? And do you see how now, yes, we are mortal, but because of God's gracious, loving kindness, His favor resting upon us, showing us His works, He is able to establish our works so that we abide forever. I close with two verses. One is from John, 1 John 2.17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but listen, whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then, you know, at the graveside, I have a book a pastor gave me years ago, I think it's published about 1938. It's the old Presbyterian book of common worship. And at the funeral service, the recommended funeral service, at the committal of the body to the ground, the old liturgy of the Presbyterian book says this. It has the minister rightly reading Revelation 14, 13. And I'll use the King James because it's so wonderful. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Is that not good news? In the face of mortality and aging, there is salvation in God in which you and those works you have done for him last forever, last forever, bearing fruit. What a wonderful psalm our patriarch Moses wrote. Let's pray as we prepare for the supper. Lord, we thank you for this meditation on, on these ancient words. 
We simply repeat what Moses said. Give to us wisdom. Return your favor upon us. Have pity upon us. We need you. Cause us to rejoice in your faithful love. Lord, show us your work, your greatness, your glory. Let your spirit and favor rest in abundance upon us and establish, O Lord, the work of our hands. Yea, Lord, establish the work of our hands, not only individually, but for this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.